You're listening to TIP. Yeah, or you get the brokers who, the way they're paid is they're compensated by, they get a commission when they sell a fund, right? Or like there's a percentage of that that goes back to the firm that goes then on to the broker that sells that fund or sells a bond or something like that. And so they're incentivized to sell you something that their firm is going to then pay a commission on. I chat with Bill Neville in this two-part series to talk about self-directed IRAs, also known as SDIRAs. We talk in depth about what it is, how it's different from normal IRAs and 401ks, who SDIRAs are good for and who they're not good for, what the most common investments are using SDIRAs, the rules and laws of SDIRAs, what Peter Thiel did to amass a $5 billion fortune using it, and a bunch more. I mentioned this at the beginning of this first episode. My goal with this two-part series is to create the best resource available covering SDIRAs and for it to be a guide you can refer back to time and time again. I know that I'll be going back and re-listening to this episode multiple times, and I'll probably refer back to pieces of it many, many times. In the quest to make this the best resource for SDIRAs, Bill and I chatted for nearly two hours. So instead of having one long two-hour episode, I decided to make it a two-part series. Before we get into this episode, I want to share some exciting news and an opportunity we have available for you guys. We're actually looking for a new podcast host. Specifically, I'm looking for someone who wants to become a podcast host full-time with TIP. You'd be working with me directly and hosting the Millennial Investing Podcast. It is a full-time role, but you're able to make your own hours, work whenever you want from wherever you want. If you're interested in applying, please send your resume via email to robert at theinvestorspodcast.com or you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram for more information. And you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at therobertleonard. All right, now let's get into part one of this two-part series with Bill Neville. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Bill Neville. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you. Good to be here. I want this episode to be the best and most comprehensive podcast episode there is about self-directed IRAs. And I want it to be a resource that listeners of the show and even myself can go back to time and time again. But before we get into that, I want to learn a little bit about you, your background, and how you got into the world of self-directed IRAs. It was very serendipitous. I have a pretty varied background. I'm 57 years old. So I've been working for 30, 35 years approximately since college. And I didn't know anything about it. And there was a posting on LinkedIn. This was a little over 10 years ago for a position that, again, I had kind of a wide and varied background that required some of the skill sets that I possessed at the time. And the position which was with Entrust was a manager of franchise operations. And so one time, the owner of our company had some franchises. So he had kind of inadvertently started a franchise operations back. This was before I was with the company. 
where he had given some licensing agreements to some other people who wanted to get into the self-directed IRA world, and they wanted to have their own businesses. And so they came to Hugh Brahma as the owner of our company, and he set up these licensing agreements where they paid money to Entrust to sort of use Entrust documents, like we provided documents and training and all these things. And over the years, he inadvertently found himself running a franchise program. At the time that I got hired, they needed someone to sort of oversee this program. And so I got hired as manager of franchise operations. And about six months into the position, he decided that he didn't want to have the franchises anymore. He just wanted to be the self-directed IRA custodian and record keeper like without the franchise program. And so if you don't have a franchise program, you don't need a manager of franchise operations. So, But I really liked the company. I liked the work that we were doing. It was new to me. And so about a year or so in, after we like settled the separation and dissolving the franchise program, and all those franchises are now operating as their own businesses, I was moved over to oversee our compliance and internal audit, which I did for a few years. I really liked the business that we were in. I didn't really necessarily like that specific work that I was doing. It was very solitary and I'm a little bit more of a social guy. And we had this business development management position that was open. And so I expressed an interest in that. And so that was about six years ago that I moved over from the the compliance business development, which is the role that I hold now. My role is to educate people about what self-directed IRAs are. So like this conversation that we're going to be having today, these are conversations that I basically have pretty much on a daily basis with people explaining what the rules are and what you're allowed to do, what you can't do, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I mean, ultimately I would just happen to stumble upon a LinkedIn ad that happened to be the Entrust group. And I sent my resume in and got hired and that's how I ended up with Entrust. It's been over 10 years now and I feel very fortunate that I did because I really, really enjoy the service that we provide. I think a lot of people should know about self-directed IRAs. Not that necessarily everybody should have a self-directed IRA, but I think it's important that people know that they exist. And so my job is essentially to try and get the word out that this is a thing that you can do this. And because I feel strongly that people should know about it, it makes it easy for me. If anything, people have to like tell me, okay, stop talking about self-directed IRAs. I've heard enough. Well, I can speak for the audience and myself. I'm glad you stumbled onto that LinkedIn ad because I know we're going to learn a lot from you today. It's an important concept. I mentioned this before our call. I've studied SDIRAs a bit and I'm excited for the audience to learn more about it. So let's start our deep dive into self-directed IRAs, which are also referred to as SDIRAs from a high level. And then we'll drill our way down into the details. To start, what is a self-directed IRA and how is it different than a normal IRA that most people are familiar with? Sure. So to have a retirement account, it requires you to have a custodian, right? Like that's a general rule around retirement accounts is that it requires a custodian to hold the assets and hold the cash and you instruct your custodian to make investments that you want to make. And most people's custodian that they have their account with is a bank or brokerage firm. And most banks and brokerage firms, the only assets that they're willing to process and hold are publicly traded stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. So for that reason, most people think that the only thing you're allowed to invest in inside a retirement account are publicly traded stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. But in reality, the IRS says, no, you can invest in almost anything you want. And we'll talk a little bit. I know it's one of the questions. We'll talk a little bit about what you can't invest in. But you can invest in almost anything you want, but you have to have your account with a custodian who's willing to hold whatever asset it is that you want to invest in. So the definition of a self-directed retirement account, a true self-directed retirement account is one 
the custodian doesn't give you advice, right? So we don't have advisors. We don't do any due diligence on the investment you want to make. We strictly provide all the custodial and record-keeping services to help you be compliant and legal to hold whatever asset you want to invest in inside your retirement account. So that's one definition of a self-directed retirement account. The other definition is that you can invest in non-traditional assets. And again, a non-traditional asset is anything other than a publicly traded stock bond or mutual fund. So if you want to buy a rental property or if you want to invest in a startup company or promissory notes or tax liens or trustees or cryptocurrency or precious metals, like I could go on and on. The IRS allows you to do that. You're allowed to make that investment inside your retirement account, but you have to have your account with a self-directed custodian. So you hear self-directed IRAs, but we're a self-directed custodian. So any account you have with us, by definition, is a self-directed retirement account. So we do have IRAs, Roth, traditional, SEP, simple IRAs, but we also have a 401k. So you can self-direct a 401k. We have a health savings account. You can self-direct your health savings account and a Coverdale educational savings account. You can self-direct a Coverdale educational savings account. So again, the definition of self-direction means one, you make all your own investment decisions. You don't get advice or any due diligence done by the custodian. And two, you can invest in non-traditional assets. If somebody listening is thinking to themselves, all right, I understand it's a retirement account with the individual investor in charge making all the investment decisions. They might be saying to themselves, but I already do that with my IRA and I even do that with my 401k. I go in, I pick my mutual funds that I want to invest in, I pick whatever stocks and things I want to buy. So how is an SDIRA different from a 401k? Because you can only invest there. Custodian you have your account with, they're probably only letting you invest in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. So if you went to that custodian and said, hey, I found this great rental property. I want to use that. I want to buy that inside my retirement account. That custodian, unless they're a self-directed custodian, the likelihood is they're going to say, I'm sorry, we don't do that. They may even tell you you're not allowed to do that. Like I've had people call me up and say that they're Merrill Lynch or Charles Schwab, not to call out anybody in particular. It could be any of those brokerage firms, Edward Jones or somebody that like I talked to my guy and he said, you can't invest in real estate inside a retirement account. And my response to them is, you can't invest in that in your retirement account with them. That doesn't mean you can't invest in that with your retirement account at all. You just need a custodian who's willing to hold that investment. And that's where the Entrust Group and our competitors, the other firms that are in the self-directed space, that's where we come in and we fill that void. We provide all the custodial record-keeping services to allow you to invest in non-traditional assets. Yeah, that's something I actually hear a lot is I hear people say, you can't buy that in your retirement accounts. Or I talk to my guy, just like you just said. They say, oh, I talk to my guy. I talk to my financial advisor. You can't do that. And it's because they're wrong and they're not talking about the right account. Right. Again, I've heard it like CPAs have told people that. Like it's people that you would think that would know better actually aren't aware of it. Even though this has always been allowed, like since ERISA went into effect in the mid 1970s, you've always been allowed to buy real estate and private placements and blah, blah, blah. But the bank and brokerage firm sort of co-opted the whole retirement account space. And that's who most people have their retirement accounts. And that's what most people think that the only thing you're allowed to invest in. So it's ultimately like some of these people are either flat out wrong or they're being a little deceptive. Maybe they know, but like, again, it's you can't invest in that with us as custodian, us being one of the banks or brokerage firms, but you can invest in other companies. To be fair, I get calls from people with some of those brokerage firms. Like I called out, I get Edward Jones brokers and I get Merrill Lynch and Charles Schwab's and some of these guys who call me up and say, 
I have an account holder who asked me about this and I told him I'd look into it. And so I wanted to pick your brain and find out more about it. So I don't want to call anybody out and say like, they're all really bad. I get plenty of them who like want to do look out for the best interest of their account holder and they don't know anything about it. And they do the research and they contact me and we have conversations and they learn and then they pass that information on to their, onto their but there are certainly some who get bad information and, and then they have to do their own due diligence. Like they have to go and they have to do their own research and they stumble across this thing called self-directed IRAs. And people who are like real estate investors, who are note investors, fix and flippers, like they tend to already know that we exist. Like these are the people who are reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad and are on bigger pockets and what listening to podcasts like this, who are educating themselves, they tend to know, right? Because they're coming across the term. You read a lot of these real estate investing books, there's going to be a section that talks about self-directed IRAs, right? But it's the people who aren't really doing the due diligence. And to be honest with you, the people who aren't doing that level of due diligence, it's probably best they don't have a self-directed IRA, to be honest with you, because the requirement of a self-directed IRA is that the account holder do all their own, like they make their investment decisions. It's on them to do all the own due diligence. And if they're not doing that, if they don't have the energy or the interest or the time then you're probably better off having it with a brokerage and with a brokerage firm and letting that advisor instruct you what funds and stocks to invest in. Like a self-directed IRA is really geared towards the people who are doing the legwork and educating themselves about the types of investments that they want to make. The interesting thing, most interesting, I think that you mentioned is that a lot of times it is these well-educated people that tell others that maybe somebody knows their brother's a CPA or their cousin's a certified financial planner or whatever the case is, somebody that they think should know and they go to them and they don't know. Like you said, I don't think they're being deceitful. They just literally don't know about it. And so when you get this advice from somebody that seems like they're well-educated, it's hard to believe that there's something else out there when somebody educated is telling you there isn't. Now, the other side of that is incentives. And Charlie Munger, somebody I study a lot, one of his favorite things is to look at incentives. And I'm not saying this is all or even most of financial advisors, but there are some financial advisors that maybe not a fiduciary. And so they're incentivized and they're not fee only. So they get paid based on how much assets they have under management. And if you leave their firm and take your funds to an SDIRA, now they're not making money off of you. And so they're not incentivized to tell you like, hey, yeah, you have an SDIRA over here. And we talk about that on the show because a lot of financial advisors don't recommend real estate. And so it's because of that incentive, right? So, yeah, they don't have a way to make money on it. Exactly. So, just know that when you're looking for anything, SDRAs or any other financial topic, just know that just because somebody says it doesn't exist or it's not possible, it doesn't necessarily mean it's 100% the case. Yeah. Or you get the brokers who, the way they're paid is they're compensated by, they get a commission when they sell a fund, right? Or like there's a percentage of that that goes back to the firm that goes then on to the broker that sells that fund or sells a bond or something like that. And so they're incentivized to sell you something that their firm is going to then pay a commission on. Neither of us are saying that this is everybody, but there are some cases where, where that is unfortunately the situation. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned briefly the types of assets that we can purchase with this SDIRA. Give us a little bit more color on those. What can we buy with our self-directed IRA and what can't we buy? We talked a lot about what you can. What can't you? Yeah. I mean, there's only three asset types that you're not allowed to invest in. Collectibles, 
life insurance and S corporation. So you can invest in any corporate structure except for S corporation. So you can invest in LLCs, limited partnerships, C corps, et cetera. But if a company is structured as an S corporation, your IRA can't invest in. Then collectibles, which would be works of art, alcoholic beverages, coin collections, like which is not to be differentiated from foreign currency. You can invest in foreign currency. You can't invest in, let's say, a coin collection. You can invest in metals, but the metals have to be a certain fineness, right? So there's dealers out there that sell investment grade metals, and then there are dealers out there that sell basically collectibles, right? And so your IRA can't hold collectibles. The example I always use is your IRA can't invest in wine, right? Like you can't buy and hold wine, but your IRA can invest in a winery. Your IRA can't invest in art, but your IRA could invest in an art gallery. So there's a difference between what's an investment like a business versus what's a collectible. Um, and then life insurance. So other than that, your IRA can invest in pretty much anything you want. We had somebody invest in racehorse, in cattle, in a bowling alley, in an airplane. But the key is that all these things have to be for investment purposes only, right? So there's rules around what's considered a prohibited transaction. And to give the most obvious and sort of straightforward example of that, the most black and white example of that is if you want to use your IRA to buy a rental property, you can't use that IRA property for personal use, right? It has to be for investment purposes only. So there are certain people that are considered disqualified persons that can't ever stay in that property or put in physical labor on that property. So it's you as the account holder, your spouse, your ancestors, so parents, grandparents, your lineal descendants, children, grandchildren, and then spouses of lineal descendants. And then also fiduciary. So if you have a CPA or a lawyer or something like that, they would probably be considered disqualified. And we might be getting ahead ourselves when we get into the actual real estate part of it. But the point is, is that in terms of types of assets, there's only three. So as long as the investment that you want to make, like to some extent, you're only limited by your imagination. But the key is that what you use has to be for investment purposes only. So when somebody invested, like I said, in an airplane, they can't fly that airplane themselves. They can't use that airplane themselves. It has to be investment where perhaps they pay a pilot and they're leasing out the airplane and the IRA owns the plane or owned the plane in the instance where we had it. And then they were leasing it. And then the payments were getting paid directly to the IRA. The IRA owned the airplane as an investment. But again, there are certain people that were disqualified from using that airplane for personal use. You didn't mention it as a disqualified asset, and it doesn't necessarily fall into any of the categories, I don't think. So I'm guessing that the answer is yes, but it's something that I've actually taken quite a bit of interest in lately. So I'm curious, a little bit selfishly, can you invest in equity crowdfunding? using an SDIRA? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when there's crowdfunding sites, right, that popped up after the Jobs Act went into place. And crowdfunding is a very general term where anybody's raising capital from like a large group. So you could set up a syndication. You could establish an LLC that you want to invest in a, a large apartment complex, for example. And you're going to raise capital from a bunch of different people who are going to put money into that LLC, then you're going to use that LLC to go turn around and buy that property. That's technically crowdfunding. Like you're using that to raise money. But the term crowdfunding that really like popped up came after the Jobs Act, where it established like certain parameters around you can, depending upon your salary, you can invest a certain dollar amount and become an investor in a private play in a privately held company. It used to be limited just to institutional investors or the wealthy where you can get in early on, let's say, a Lyft or an Uber or somebody like that. And then when it goes public, you make a whole ton of money. The crowdfunding, the Jobs Act opened that the ability to non-accredited investors, basically general 
investors to be able to come in at a very small dollar amount and now all of a sudden have the potential to invest in a pre-IPO type of offering, again, like a Lyft or some startup. And then when it goes public, then you own a ton of money. But in order to meet the Jobs Act, you had to, they established these sites, these crowdfunding sites where they had to meet certain qualifications to be a site. But all those sites, they all accept IRA money. Like, and a lot of them have, you know, very specific relationships. Like we have, I guess I don't want to promote any in particular, but there's one that like, if you want to invest in, in one of their offerings, you have to use Entrust. Like they are exclusive with us. There are others that refer clients to us, new investors to us, where I know that we're on a list of four or five different self-directed IRA companies. And then these guys call around and say, hey, I want to invest through this crowdfunding portal. And they gave me your name among others. And I just wanted to find out, like, talk to you about your process, how long you've been in business, blah, blah, blah. And then they decide who they want to use. I mean, that's a very common investment. We process crowdfunding transactions on a daily basis, at least a few that we do on a daily basis. Like it's that popular. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. 
Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. This is probably going to be a little bit nuanced, but let's just say somebody's already investing in crowdfunding with non-retirement money. They have some savings that they put into crowdfunding on a platform. Do they have to open a new account with that crowdfunding website to put that money in? Or can you kind of commingle retirement money into that investment account that's already there? Like, How does separation work? How does that all work tactically? Yeah. You have to establish an account with that crowdfunding site in the name of your IRA. So if you also have a personal account where you're investing personal funds, you have to establish a second account in the name of your IRA. Now you can partner those two into the same investment. Like the IRS allows what's called partnering. It's an industry term that we use where you're using both your IRA money and also potentially personal funds or maybe multiply. Let's say you have a traditional and a Roth. Those are two separate accounts that can be partnered into the same investment. So with crowdfunding sites, because the IRA is the entity that's making the investment, the individual, when you're using your retirement account, you as a, the, that investment is not structured in your personal name. It's structured in the name of your IRA. So standard naming convention is some version of custodian name for benefit of the client's name and account number. So with us, when you make an investment in anything, real estate, a private placement, precious metals, promissory notes, whatever, the name of the investor that goes on the agreement is the Entrust Group, FBO, for benefit of, that stands for, the Entrust Group, FBO, the account holder's name, and their account number. So if you're going to invest through one of the crowdfunding sites, and most crowdfunding sites actually have that as an option. When you go to establish an account with them, they'll ask you, I think all of them do at this point, but I know the ones that work with us, they'll come up with a box, which is, are you establishing this account in your name or in the name of your IRA? And then whenever you check on your IRA, then it's going to ask you, who's the custodian? What's your account number? Like It's going to ask you the questions to fill in the proper information that you need to then, when it comes time to make the investment through that crowdfunding site, they can structure the investment agreement properly in the name of the IRA. Again, standard naming convention, we all maybe structure it just slightly different, but it's going to include your custodian name, it's going to include your name, and it's going to include your account number. That's going to be the naming convention of who's making that investment. And then if you're naming it, if you're also investing in your personal name, then that investment's in your personal name. But on the investment agreement, it has to show two different investors. It shows your IRA at whatever dollar amount and percentage, and it shows your personal name at whatever dollar amount and percentage. We'll get into the actual steps of how to open an account. But I'm curious, in this context, how long does it take to open an SDIRA and then invest it into the crowdfunding site? Let's just say somebody's on a crowdfunding site. There's a company they really want to invest in. Their offering is only open for the next couple of days, maybe a week. Is this something that they could do quick enough to get their money into that investment? The part of the biggest holdup, but opening the account takes 10 minutes. Like we have an online portal that if you go to our online portal to establish the account, it's name, address, social security number, date of birth type of account. Like to our to our extent, it depends upon how quickly you type. But it can take you and have an account established in 10 minutes. And at the end of the 10 minutes, you now have an account number. Which means once you have an account number, you have everything you need to go start establishing the account with the crowdfunding site. You have the information you need to like subscribe or tell them you want to subscribe. The tough card part is going to be actually sending the money because once your account's established, now you have to fund that account. You have to either, most people typically are transferring or rolling over money from their current IRA custodian or 401k custodian. That part 
I mean, I've seen it happen as quick as a couple of days, but on average, it typically takes around one to two weeks for by the time, like whether you go to that custodian and fill out their paperwork or whether you fill out, like when you do an IRA to IRA transfer, you fill out the transfer form of the custodian who's receiving the money. And then that custodian sends it over. So you're sending money from, let's say, Charles Schwab to Entrust with an IRA with Schwab, you're going to fill out an, an Entrust transfer form. Then there's a section of the form we have to sign called a letter of acceptance. And then we send it over to Schwab and then Schwab transfers the money. We'll turn around and get the transfer form sent out usually in a day. But once Schwab or, or Fidelity or whoever has that, it's now incumbent upon them to process the transfer. And it's got to like sort of work its way up to the top of the pile of their transactions. They have to send the money. And then depending upon whether you requested a wire or a check is going to affect that. So ultimately, to answer your question, getting the account opened is really, really easy and quick. Getting the account funded can take anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks, right? And so that's sort of the big issue is, can you set up an account where you can now go and you can complete the paperwork where you're committing to the investment? You can absolutely do that in under an hour, right? You will get your account open. Now you go to the crowdfunding site, you set up an account, you tell them the investment that they want to make, you commit to it, you know, 50,000 or 10,000 or whatever you want to invest. Then the question is, how quickly do they have to have the money on hand? And that's where it becomes a handful of days, or it can be several weeks, depending upon the custodian that they're transferring or rolling over the money fund. It depends upon if they submit the paperwork to us properly, because the subscription agreement has to come to the custodian for review and signature. If they take their time in getting that to us, that's just going to add to the time. Did they not complete it properly in the name of the IRA? Now we have to send it back and get it redone in the name of the IRA. That's sort of the biggest mistake that people who make investments in private placements make is that they submit the investment agreement to us in their personal name. And as we already talked about, it has to be in the name of the IRA. So now we have to send it back to them and say, no, you need to correct this. And sometimes they have to go, like if they did it through a crowdfunding site, they have to get the crowdfunding site involved. So if everything flows perfectly, I mean, we've done transactions within a few days. Like people are like, I had to have the money here. Like, okay, but you need to get the money. You need to talk to your current custodian. You need to get the money over to us. You need to get the paperwork. You have to request to have it expedited, which in our case comes with a little bit of a fee. So we have done that. But typically, it's going to take from the time the account opens to transfer it over to then transact it is going to like on the quick side, on the fast side is still going to be between one to two weeks. But again, committing to the investment is easy. Do they need the money within three days? That's a challenge to get that done. A workaround that seems like it might be possible, but I don't think it is, is can you invest with non-retirement money and then transfer that to the SDIRA and maybe consider that as part of your contribution for the year? No, you definitely can't do that. What people have done, and particularly when it comes to real estate, let's say you want to buy a rental property and you need to come up with earnest money. You need to throw down like $5,000 to hold the property. And now they've got to open an account. They've got to drop the contract in the name of the IRA. They have to transfer the money. They have to fund the money. And they're not going to have time to do that. They're going to lose the property if they don't give the money. What people can do is they front the money. And then once the money goes from the IRA and gets paid, then whoever they gave the money to, whether it's an escrow or if it's being held in escrow, then they have to reimburse the account holder. They have to send the money back to the account holder. But The scenario that you played out, no, that wouldn't be allowed. If they're putting up money up front in order to hold the investment until the IRA comes up with the money, that investment sponsor, whoever they gave the money to, has to give them the money back. It can't come from interest. That's an individual transaction between the two of them. And even then, it's not a great way to do it. 
it's not the best way, but it's sort of a last ditch. If it really, like you really want to make the investments, the only way to hold it, but there has to be an understanding that whoever you gave that money to, the IRA can't reimburse you. The IRA sends money to you. That's a distribution, right? The IRA sends the money to the investment sponsor or to the seller or to the borrower or whatever type of transaction. If you fronted money, then that whoever you gave money to has to give it back to you. What I'm taking away from this is that don't let your emotions and excitement for an investment take control and make you rush this. If you want to invest with your Astra IRA, get it set up ahead of time. And if you haven't yet, but there's an investment you're interested in, just remember the advice that Buffett gives is there's always another opportunity coming. Errors of omission are okay. Missing an investment is okay, but don't let your emotions take hold and, and rush you into something. We do a monthly webinar, a monthly educational webinar. And a couple of few years ago, we decided to do one that was like kind of red flags or things to watch out for, for making investment, things to questions asked, things to be careful. And one of the red flags is if they're telling you like, we have to have the money by so many days or you're going to lose the investment type thing like that. That's one of the red flags. Right, is be careful whenever somebody's saying I have to have this money by a certain date. You work for a company that's been in business for over 40 years, tens of thousands account, billions and billions in investor assets. You mentioned you see equity crowdfunding disbursements or investments nearly every day or multiple a day. What do you see as the most common? What is the absolute most common investment you're seeing people use their SDIRAs for? Well, real estate is probably the most common, although real estate and private placements are kind of neck and neck. And then also precious metals. like Those are by far and away the three most popular. But when I talk about real estate, that's a general term that also includes trustees, notes that are secured by real estate. That's considered a real estate investment. Tax liens, they fall under the real estate umbrella. Plus, there's also the actual holding of real estate, right? Rental properties and things like that. On a broader scale, like I get a lot of people who tell me they're investing in real estate and what they're actually investing in is a syndication, right? So they're going to invest in an LLC and the LLC, like I talked about earlier, the LLC is going to turn around and buy like a rental apartment complex or something. That's not technically a real estate transaction from our standpoint because they're not investing in the real estate, they're holding an LLC. That's a private placement. So from a standpoint of, we have a lot of investments into LLCs and LPs that if you were to drill down into what the LLC or the LP is investing in, they're holding real estate. And so it's a syndicator or it's a fund that's going to, maybe it's a fund that's doing notes, right? So ultimately, that's kind of a real estate transaction from our, like, in our books, it's considered private placement investment. So it's tough to differentiate when you say, okay, like real estate and private placements is a significant part of self-directed IRAs. Like the percentage is probably like 80 to 90%. And then the, like a large part of the rest of it is precious metals, right? Cryptocurrency is actually something that's a growing thing, but private placements, which can be anything from startup companies to hedge funds to, again, syndications or privately held funds, those all fall under the umbrella of private placement. Whether real estate and which one is more or the other is tough to distinguish. But I mean, they both make up, combine those two. And you're talking about like, the majority of our transactions that we do fall under one of those. And then again, precious metals become just like the third. When someone is looking for a potential company or custodian for their SCIRA, what are the most important things to look out for? What makes a custodian good versus bad? That's a good question. 
But I think most people are looking at the service that like, you know, they want to feel that they're going to get service, right? So if they call, they're going to get a response. If they send an email, somebody's going to respond. If they have questions about the paperwork, there's somebody there to help them. And then people look at fees. Like those are going to be the two things that people are most focused on. I mean, you certainly want to make sure that the company knows what they're doing, right? So those are where I have conversations, right? Where people are calling and they want to understand what it's all about. More intelligently, we can answer the questions, like the more comfortable they're going to be. People want to be responded. People are entrusting their retirement accounts to someone, their retirement account funds, and they process the transaction. They want to be kept in the loop and know what's going on. And so that's going to be the most important thing is, are you getting, are they responding to you, right? Are you getting people who are answering your questions and responding back and keep you informed of what's going on? And then, I mean, I think people look for ease, ease of use, right? So like we have a, a really great online portal that you can use to process your investments or review your statements or see transactions. And so, you know, the ability to do things without necessarily having to talk to somebody can be pretty useful to people whenever you have, you know, an online portal be able to access all that stuff. Since there's such a large range of investments that can be made with your self-directed IRAs, the government has enacted laws and regulations that govern some of the things that can be done with them. We've talked through some of the assets that you can and can't invest in, and we you briefly touched on the disqualified parties and things like that. Walk us through in a little bit more detail the most common rules or laws regarding investing using SDIRAs. So there's a section of the Internal Revenue Code, Section 4975, that deals primarily with disqualified persons and prohibited transactions. So again, to repeat, what's considered a disqualified person to your IRA is yourself, your own IRA. So if you have an IRA, you're a disqualified person to your IRA, your spouse, your ancestors, your lineal descendants, and spouses of lineal descendants. So parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren, spouses. So I do sometimes get calls from people who say, I understand like, family is disqualified. And I always qualified saying, no, not all families. It's very specific members of your family. So what that means, there's what's called the self-benefit rule, which essentially says that any investment made by your IRA has to be purely for the benefit of the IRA. So that you or any other disqualified person can't receive a direct or indirect benefit from the investment made by your IRA. It's kind of tough to qualify an indirect benefit. There's a lot of ambiguity in that section of the code But there are some things that are very black and white. So, like for example, you can use your IRA to lend money, right? Like you can drop a promissory note and have your IRA be the bank and lend money to any non disqualified third party. So, you can have a collateralized by real estate, which is called a trustee investment. You can have uncollateralized notes. You can do all that, but you can't use your IRA to lend money to a disqualified person. You can't lend yourself. You can't lend your spouse. You can't lend your parents. You can't lend your children. That's just a prohibited transaction. Same thing with real estate. Let's say you own a rental property. You can't turn around and sell your rental property that you own to your IRA because you're a disqualified person. Or your parents, you can't use your IRA to buy your parents' home because your parents are a disqualified person to your IRA. And again, specifically when it comes to real estate, a disqualified person can't use the property for personal use or do any physical labor on the property. So like no second home, no vacation home or anything like that. Now, when you're talking about like privately held companies, that's where it gets, there's some, some wording in the code that is definitely up for interpretation that talks about if you want to use your IRA to invest in, let's say you are an owner of a company and you want to use your retirement account to invest back into that company, then it becomes down to, it depends upon your role with the company and how much ownership you have. 
So if you're just a, a passive owner in a company, right? If you're a private investor in a privately held company and you have no role in the company, you're not involved in running the company or a decision maker, you're just an investor, then you can actually own up to 50% of that company and your IRA can be an investor. But if you have an active role in running the company, you're the CEO or you're on the board or something like that, then there's a place where it talks about you have to be less than 10%. You have to have less than 10% ownership. But even the wording on that is can be open to interpretation. So like when I tell people about that, I'm usually like, look, I encourage you to talk to a CPA or talk to a tax attorney, have them read again in section 4975 of the code, because ultimately whether this is prohibited or not is incumbent upon you to not complete a prohibited transaction. It's not end trust responsibility to make sure you don't complete a prohibited transaction. Now we can't knowingly process prohibited transactions. So if you own 100% of the company and you're the CEO and you come in and you say, I'm going to use my IRA to invest back into that. Or if you want to buy a rental property from your parents or from yourself, we would reject it because it's an obvious prohibited transaction. But there is some ambiguity around those prohibited transaction rules. And again, what's considered an indirect benefit, right? We already taught it says direct or indirect benefit. But the key is, is that any investment made by your IRA has to be purely for the benefit of the IRA. If you're investing in a company that you also receive a salary, and somehow your investment is directly tied to your salary. By putting $100,000 in that company, you've increased your salary by $5,000 a year. You're receiving a direct benefit. That's considered a favorable transaction. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, 
everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. We're going to talk about Peter Thiel in just a little bit. And this idea of investing in a company that you own or a part of, it's a great line that he walked and he was part of. So it's definitely possible. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But one of the things that I was thinking, and you kind of touched on this, but I still have a little bit of questions or gray area around it is, you mentioned the assets that we can't invest in. And then so you gave great examples, wine, right? You can invest in the winery as a business, but you can't invest in the wine itself. What if, let's just say we want to invest in a piece of artwork? We can't do that with an SJRA. So what if we open an LLC, buy the artwork, and then we use our SDIRA to then invest in the LLC and not the underlying artwork? Is that okay as long as we still stick to all those rules you just mentioned in terms of ownership and direct benefits and things like that? Are we able to use an LLC to kind of shield those unqualified investments? If you ask me what I feel comfortable doing that in my IRA, my answer would be no. I can't give you like an absolute answer to say it definitely is or it definitely isn't, but I can tell you that I wouldn't do it. Like, I feel like the IRA, like not being able to invest in collectibles, like that extends to the LLC. But I mean, I guess, I mean, there are potentially companies out there who maybe have a business where they're, like, I have a friend actually who does restoration. On art, right? Like it's part of his business is like he does restoration. He ends up with some of this art and resells it. And like he couldn't invest his own IRA. I'm talking about the yeah, like wanted to raise capital and he went to third parties and went to IRAs and said, okay, these, uh, you know, I'm raising capital and these IRAs are going to invest with me. I wouldn't do it with my IRA. That's the only really know what way I know to answer that question is because that isn't something that like you can go to the code and say, oh, here, that's covered. Like this specifically says like this is or isn't allowed. I would say that for me, that would cross too far in the gray area towards the, I guess, red or black, white, black that I wouldn't feel comfortable. One of the biggest challenges with any sort of business or real estate transaction is often raising the capital. So if you're starting a new business, raising capital is often really difficult. Or if you're starting a real estate business, you want to raise money for a deal. A lot of times people say raising capital is the hardest part. Do SDIRA companies have maybe a list of people or pool of people that have a bunch of money in an SDIRA, they're interested in investing, and they don't necessarily have specific investments that they want to make, but they have this money they want to invest in. And maybe people that are looking to raise capital can tap into that list. Like I could see that being super valuable. Like Maybe Ntrust has a list of 100 different investors that told you, hey, I'm really interested in real estate. 
I don't have a specific project, but if you knew people that are looking to raise capital, maybe I'd be interested in hearing them out and maybe investing in their projects. Is there any type of relationship there or type of like almost like a job board? I kind of think of it like. Yeah, I can't speak to other companies. We created something a couple of few years ago that we call Interest Connect. Our account holders over the years have been asking us that type of question for something like that. And for years and years, we've been in business for almost 40 years. From when I started with the company and prior to that, when anybody would bring that up, our response was always, look, we're just a record keeper and custodian. We're a neutral third party. If we start doing something like that, we're potentially taking on the role of a fiduciary, which would require a certain amount of due diligence being done on like if we're going to like sort of bring investments to you. A few years ago, the owner of our company became more amenable to the idea of creating what this platform that we call, which is Entrust Connect, where it enables investment sponsors to set up a dashboard, set up a profile that enables them to, through that Entrust Connect platform, they can go and seek out specifically retirement account investors or encourage people to use their retirement accounts. And part of that is that we also created a marketplace of investment opportunities for our existing account holders to review. This marketplace that we have, we have this very detailed disclosure that says the most important disclosure is these are simply investments that other interest clients have already invested. We've done no due diligence on these investments. We don't have any business relationship with these companies. They don't pay us to be listed on here. We don't take any kind of commission from them. These are simply investments that other interest clients have already invested So we do have something like that. It's available only to our existing account holders. So when they log into their account, they can open up Entrust Connect. The first thing that comes up is this fairly detailed disclosure. And it's a list of investments. They're mostly like private placements. So there's syndications, there's funds, there's privately held companies. I don't think there's any notes specifically, but there are companies that are like funds that are investing in notes. But but it's a list of investments that other... We have about 50 on there at this point. And it's really new for us, like really new being within the last few years. And really just starting last year that we really expanded and got a lot more offerings on there. So I can't speak to other companies if anybody else is doing that or has something like that. We had to like, have a lot of like sort of conversations with legal, legal and compliance as far as like creating the disclosure that comes up, the indemnification and everything. So we have created something like that. It's a value add that we created for our account holders because they have been asking us for something like that over the years. I bought this rental property and I'm getting rental income coming in, or I, I had this note payoff or this private placement paid off and I opened the account with you for this express investment and I don't want to put it back in the market. So what else can I invest in? And our response for years and years was, sorry, like these are self-directed. You got to go find the investment yourself. And so we created this marketplace to sort of solve that they would ask us, what are your other account holders investing in? And my response for many years was, I'm sorry, that's just not something we do. But now we kind of do. As someone who is potentially looking at raising money for real estate deals, I would say I'm certainly biased, but I think that that is awesome. I think that's a great thing. And I'm glad you mentioned disclosure because I was going to say, why couldn't you just add something that says, hey, look, we're just providing this info for you. We didn't do any due diligence. We're not recommending any investments. We're not saying these are good, bad, indifferent. We have no financial incentive here. We're literally just providing information. And as the owner, it sounds like decided, I couldn't really see an issue there. Definitely see how you need the legal the legal piece to be rock solid. But other than that, I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, on the marketplace, they, for example, when you go on the marketplace and you'll see like the 40 or 50 different offerings that are on there, and then you can click on it, and then it'll have more detail about the offering, whether it's Reg A, Reg D, 
how much they're looking to raise, what the minimum investment is, who the contact is. And then they can upload marketing documents. So like the investment sponsors can put like a one-page sheet or marketing material. But if they try to put like a subscription agreement or an actual purchase agreement, we don't put it on there because now there's a legal aspect to it in terms of like now they're offering an investment as opposed to just like linking. We call it Interest Connect for a reason. We're just connecting you. We're connecting the investment sponsor with the investor. You guys still have to talk to each other. You still need to do your own due diligence. You need to get them to send you the subscription agreement. It's not going to be available on here. I mean, I'm really glad we did it, but I also understood why we were hesitant about it for a long time, just from a potential exposure kind of thing that we could be under. But we disclaimed the heck out of it, right? Like in terms of what our role is. The other thing is we don't take anything, right? Like you're not paying us to be on there. Right? Like what we hope is that it's a value add for our account holders, but we also hope that you as the investment sponsor, if you have other people that are wanting to use their IRA, that we become your preferred provider that you refer people to. And then we ultimately charge the account holder our fees, right? We don't charge the investment sponsor. The investment sponsor is, is free to pay the fees on behalf of the account holder, but that's between the account holder and the investment sponsor to work that out. I would say that the value being added is worth the potential risk. If we were looking at a scale, I would say that the value is probably outweighing the risk personally from my perspective. I can tell you it's raised about $50 million. Yeah, I can see the value. I really do see the value there. When you're trying to raise the money, what is the process on that end? Do you just reach out to Entrust or how does that work? Because you said you have to be a client to get into Entrust Connect. So what if you're trying to raise the money? So you have to establish a profile. So the Entrust Connect has two sides to it. It's the investment sponsor dashboard and then the marketplace. And so as the investment sponsor, you have to set up a profile and an offering, and then you request it to be posted on the marketplace. And so from our standpoint, once you request it to be posted on the marketplace, then we're going to come back to you and say, okay, you got any Entrust clients that have invested with you? Or have you referred anybody that's you know, going to invest with you? And then if the answer is yes, then we find out who those account holders are. And if they have account holders that invested, then we put them on the marketplace. If they haven't, then we come back and say, okay, we can't put you on there until you get somebody invest with their Entrust account. And if you don't already know an Entrust account holder, the dashboard has some ways to help them promote the idea of self-directed IRAs to their existing database. Like that's the, got the ability to enter in a bunch of email addresses and names and it'll send out a template email inviting them to open an account. But ultimately, we can't put them on the marketplace until they've got an interest client that has invested with them. Almost every financial asset or strategy or account has a group of people that it's good for and a group of people it might not be the right fit for. You mentioned before briefly who it might not be good for, but give us a breakdown of who an SDIRA is good for and who it might not be right for. It's good for anybody who is looking at investing in outside the stock bond mutual fund market and is also doing the due diligence necessary for that. Whether they have an advisor who's helping them with the due diligence or they're doing it themselves, it's good for anybody who wants to diversify their retirement account and not just be locked into stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. So, I mean, you have an account with a brokerage firm who You've got an advisor or broker and they're say, you know, they'll talk to you and they'll find out your risk tolerance and your age. And then they'll say, okay, we recommend these three or four or five funds. But the likelihood is, is that when the market goes up, all those funds are going to go up. When the market goes down, all those funds are going to go down, maybe at different percentages, but they tend to all move in the same direction. If you want to diversify away from that and maybe put it into metals, which tends to be a hedge against the stock market, or you wanted to throw some real estate in, 
the self-directed IRA gives you the flexibility to do that. But again, it's ultimately your responsibility to make sure you do your own due diligence. When I caution people, like I ask who, and to answer your question, who might it not be good for? The majority of the time, the asset that you hold inside a self-directed IRA is not going to be as liquid as your stocks and mutual funds are going to be. So if you are close to retired minimum distribution age, if you're coming up on age 72, you want to be aware of that, that these aren't necessarily, if you hold real estate or if you invest in a note or you're investing in a private placement and you come up and you're required to take a distribution and you don't have the cash in you know, some other retirement account to meet your requirement distribution, you can take an asset as a distribution or you can take a percentage of an asset as a distribution. It's not like you can't take the distribution, but if you want to take your distribution in cash, you need to find out a way to liquidate it. So that's sort of my biggest caveat with anybody who's considering a self-directed IRA is be aware that the likelihood is if you're investing in non-traditional assets, those aren't going to be as liquid as the traditional stock bond mutual fund market. And so just Again, there's workarounds. Just be aware. I think it's more than anything, it's be aware of the fact that these aren't going to be necessarily as liquid. But again, as far as who they're for, I mean, they're for people who want to break out and diversify their retirement account portfolio away from stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, and either have an advisor who's helping them figure out what to invest in or doing the due diligence, or they have lawyers who are looking over the paperwork, or they are doing all that legwork themselves. They're reading the books and they're watching the podcasts and they're listening to the podcasts and educating themselves. What are some of the negative sides of SDIRAs? We've talked a lot about the good things. We just talked about some things that are maybe downsides of the investments themselves that you can make with SDIRAs, like being illiquid, et cetera. But what are some of the negative sides of the accounts themselves? And I think probably the most common, if I had to think of one, is probably maybe the fees. So talk to us a little bit too about the fees that are associated with SDIRAs. Yeah, but I mean, fees with self-directed IRAs are going to be like in general are dramatically less than what you're paying your fund company or paying that brokerage firm. Like most of the time, if you're investing in some fund or multiple funds through a brokerage firm, like they're taking fees, right? Like I've actually had people say to me, oh, I have an account with so-and-so brokerage firm and they're not charging me any fees. And it's like, yeah, they are. How do you think they're staying in business? You just don't see the fees because they're coming out of the back end of the fund. So like one year that fund went up, you know, let's say 8%. Well, if they didn't take out the fees, it may have gone up 10%, right? But they took their 2%. You just didn't see it. All you saw was the gain. Our fees, like we have a flat per asset fee of $299 a year. If you were to invest, let's say $100,000, which is not necessarily a ton of money to invest in one, in particular if you're looking at real estate, that's 0.3%. I mean, I defy you to find any fund. I know there are no load funds and things like that, but I think most of the time the self-directed IRAs, our fees are dramatically less than what brokerage firms are charging. I really think the biggest downside, the biggest negativity, and I tell, I'm not going to repeat myself, is the illiquidity and the fact that you want to take cash out. If you need to access cash fairly quickly and you're investing in a self-directed IRA, the likelihood is you're investing in something that's not tremendously liquid. Precious metals being one of the exceptions to that, right? You can pretty easily sell, go and sell metals, but you know they tend to be pretty illiquid. And then the downside is, is that you're not going to get any advice from the custodian you have your account with. They're not going to do any due diligence on the investment. There's exposure to fraud. When you're investing in private stock, privately held funds, 
I mean, Bernie Madoff took a lot of money from retirement accounts, right? I mean, if you're investing in something that turns out to be a scam, like if you're staying with publicly traded stocks, bonds, mutual funds, it's less likely that you're going to run into a scenario where the company just, you know, an Enron type situation where it was publicly traded and turned out to be some kind of giant scam where the whole entire company lost all its value. That isn't common. In the self-directed IRA world, I mean, you get fraudsters that are going out and saying that they're doing certain things. And if you're not doing your due diligence and, or if they're just that good at committing fraud, people lose money. Do you have to have separate accounts for different types of investments? Or can you just have one account that can invest in crypto and real estate and all these other things? Can it all just be in one account? Sure. Yeah. You don't need to set up multiple accounts. If you have different tax rules, right? So like a traditional has to be in its own account, a Roth has to be in its own account, right? Like you partner them into the same investment. But other than that, yeah, you can hold as many different types of investments inside your account as you want. You're not required to set up multiple different accounts. So if we have a traditional and a Roth SDIRA, is it $300 a year for each account or is it in total? Yeah, it's per account. I mean, that's a fee option. That's one of two annual fee options that we have. We also have a fee option based on the value of the account. So it could be as low as $199 a year. But yeah, like the fee is based on a per account basis. So whatever fees you're worth. So there's a transaction fee that we charge. And we all have different sort of fee structures, although they tend to be somewhat similar. I think most custodians, self-directed custodians have an annual fee. Some have higher annual fees with no transaction fees. Some have transaction fees with lower annual fees. I think that's kind of where we fall in. But yeah, you're always going to be, whatever custodian you have your account with, each account is going to be subject to its own fees. I certainly expected, like I said, I've done a little bit of research into SDIRAs before this. So I kind of had an expectation of what the fees were going to be. But before I did that research, I expected SDIRA fees to be a lot higher than they are. Not even just with you guys, just every company in general. I expected you to be thousands, not a couple hundred. No, no, you're right. It's fairly inexpensive comparatively. I have had people who have said, like, how do you guys even stay in business? And but we don't have advisors. Like, we're not paying advisors. We have operations people who process transactions. And then we have some management, we have salespeople. And with brokerage firms, they have advisors. And those advisors, a lot of them make a good bit of money. And so I think what you're seeing is a little bit of a leaner sort of run operation because they don't have to pay advisors a ton of money who have to go out and get Series 7 and Series 66 licenses and do all that stuff. We're all certified IRA service professionals. CISP is what we have to get. And the majority of the company, you have to work in the, in the industry for a few years before you can take the test. But that's different than getting a Series 7 where like, it enables you to, to advise and now you can sell securities and you can sell insurance and do some of that stuff that, that I think becomes a little more costly for the firms that are hiring these people. All right, guys. So that's where I'm going to cut part one of this two-part series. Be sure to tune in next week for part two and the next hour of my conversation with Bill Neville. See you guys then. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.